Chapter 15, Section 8 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R. The. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 4. Production of Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 15. Machinery and Modern Industry. Section 8. Revolution Affected in Manufacture, Handicrafts, and Domestic Industry by Modern Industry. A. Overthrow of Cooperation Based on Handicraft and on the Division of Labor. We have seen how machinery does away with cooperation based on handicrafts and with manufacture based on the division of handicraft labor. An example of the first sort is the mowing machine. It replaces cooperation between mowers. A striking example of the second kind is the needle-making machine. According to Adam Smith, ten men, in his day, made in cooperation over 40,000 needles a day. On the other hand, a single needle machine makes 145,000 in a working day of 11 hours. One woman or one girl superintends four such machines and so produces near upon 600,000 needles in a day and upwards of 3 million in a week. Footnote 167. Children's Employment Commission, 3rd Report, 1864, page 108, note 447. End of footnote 167. A single machine, when it takes the place of cooperation or of manufacture, may itself serve as the basis of an industry of a handicraft character. Still, such a return to handicrafts is but a transition to the factory system, which, as a rule, makes its appearance so soon as the human muscles are replaced for the purpose of driving the machines by a mechanical motive power such as steam or water. Here and there, but in any case only for a time, an industry may be carried on, on a small scale, by means of mechanical power. This is effected by hiring steam power, as is done in some of the Birmingham trades, or by the use of small caloric engines, as in some branches of weaving. Footnote 168. In the United States, the restoration in this way of handicrafts based on machinery is frequent, and therefore, when the inevitable transition to the factory system shall take place, the ensuing concentration will, compared with Europe and even in England, stride on in seven-league boots. End of footnote 168. In the Coventry silk weaving industry, the experiment of, quote, cottage industries, unquote, was tried. In the center of a square surrounded by rows of cottages, an engine house was built and the engine connected by shafts with the looms and the cottages. In all cases, the power was hired out at so much per loom. The rent was payable weekly, whether the looms worked or not. Each cottage held from two to six looms. Some belonged to the weaver, some were bought on credit, some were hired. The struggle between these cottage factories and the factory proper lasted over 12 years. It ended with the complete ruin of the 300 cottage factories. Footnote 169. See Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st of October, 1865, page 64. End of footnote 169. Wherever the nature of the process did not involve production on a large scale, 
The new industries that have sprung up in the last few decades, such as envelope making, steel pen making, etc., have, as a general rule, first passed through the handicraft stage and then the manufacturing stage as short phases of transition to the factory stage. The transition is very difficult in those cases where the production of the article by manufacturer consists not of a series of graduated processes, but of a great number of disconnected ones. This circumstance formed a great hindrance to the establishment of steel pen factories. Nevertheless, about 15 years ago, a machine was invented that automatically performed six separate operations at once. The first steel pens were supplied by the handicraft system in the year 1820 at 7 pounds 4 shillings the gross. In 1830, they were supplied by manufacturer 8 shillings, and today the factory system supplies them to the trade at from 2 shillings to 6 pence the gross. Footnote 170. Mr. Giot erected in Birmingham the first steel pen factory in a large scale. It produced, so early as 1851, over 180 millions of pens yearly and consumed 120 tons of steel. Birmingham has the monopoly of this industry in the United Kingdom and at present produces thousands of millions of steel pens. According to the census of 1861, the number of persons employed was 1,428, of whom 1,268 females from five years of age upwards. End of footnote 170. B. Reaction of the factory system on manufacture and domestic industries. Along with the development of the factory system and of the revolution in agriculture that accompanies it, production in all the other branches of industry not only extends, but alters its character. The principle carried out in the factory system of analyzing the process of production into its constituent phases and of solving the problems thus proposed by the application of mechanics, of chemistry, and the whole range of natural sciences becomes the determining principle everywhere. Hence, machinery squeezes itself into the manufacturing industries first for one detailed process, then for another. Thus, the solid crystal of their organization, based on the old division of labor, becomes dissolved and makes way for constant changes. Independently of this, a radical change takes place in the composition of the collective laborer, a change of the persons working in combination. In contrast with the manufacturing period, the division of labor is thenceforth based, wherever possible, on the employment of women, of children of all ages, and of unskilled laborers, in one word, on cheap labor, as it is characteristically called in England. This is the case not only with all production on a large scale, whether employing machinery or not, but also with the so-called domestic industry, whether carried on in the houses of workpeople or in small workshops. This modern so-called domestic industry has nothing, except the name, in common with the old-fashioned domestic industry, the existence of which presupposes independent urban handicrafts, independent peasant farming, and above all, a dwelling house for the laborer and his family. That old-fashioned industry has now been converted into an outside department of the factory, the manufactory, or the warehouse. Besides the factory operatives, the manufacturing workmen and the handicraftsmen, whom it concentrates in large masses at one spot and directly commands, capital also sets in motion, by means of invisible threads, another army, that of the workers in the domestic industries who dwell in the large towns 
and are also scattered over the face of the country. An example, the shirt factory of Messrs. Tilly of Londonbury, which employs 1,000 operatives in the factory itself, and 9,000 people spread up and down the country and working in their own houses. Footnote 171. Children's Employment Commission, 2nd Report, 1864, page 68, note 415, end of footnote 171. The exploitation of cheap and immature labor power is carried out in a more shameless manner in modern manufacture than in the factory proper. This is because the technical foundation of the factory system, namely the substitution of machines for muscular power and the light character of the labor, is almost entirely absent in manufacture, and at the same time, women and over-young children are subjected, in the most unconscionable way, to the influence of poisonous or injurious substances. This exploitation is more shameless in the so-called domestic industry than in manufacturers, and that because the power of resistance in the laborers decreases with their dissemination, because a whole series of plundering parasites insinuate themselves between the employer and the workman, because the domestic industry has always to compete either with the factory system or with manufacturing the same branch of production, because poverty robs the workman of the conditions most essential to his labor, of space, light, and ventilation, because employment becomes more and more irregular, and finally, because in these last resorts of the masses made, quote, redundant, unquote, by modern industry and agriculture, competition for work attains its maximum. Economy in the means of production, first systematically carried out in the factory system, and there, from the very beginning, coincident with the most reckless squandering of labor power and robbery of the conditions normally requisite for labor, this economy now shows its antagonistic and murderous side more and more in a given branch of industry, the less the social productive power of labor and the technical basis for a combination of processes are developed in that branch. C. Modern Manufacture I now proceed, by a few examples, to illustrate the principles laid down above. As a matter of fact, the reader is already familiar with numerous instances given in the chapter on the working day. In the hardware manufacturers of Birmingham and the neighborhood, there are employed, mostly in very heavy work, 30,000 children and young persons, besides 10,000 women. There they are to be seen in the unwholesome brass foundries, button factories, enameling, galvanizing, and lacquering works. Footnote 172. And now, forsooth, children are employed at file cutting in Sheffield. End of footnote 172. Owing to the excessive labor of their work people, both adult and non-adult, certain London houses where newspapers and books are printed have got the ill-omened name of, quote, slaughterhouses, unquote. Footnote 173. Children's Employment Commission, 5th Report, 1866, page 3, note 24, page 6, notes 55, 56, page 7, notes 59, 60, end of footnote 173. Similar excesses are practiced in bookbinding, where the victims are chiefly women, girls, and children. Young persons have to do heavy work in rope walks and night work in salt mines, candle manufactories, and chemical works. Young people are worked to death at turning the looms in silk weaving when it is not carried out by machinery. Footnote 174. Locusitado, pages 114, 115, notes 6 and 7. The commissioner justly remarks that though, as a rule, machines take the place of men, here literally young persons replace machines. 
End of footnote 174. One of the most shameful, the most dirty, and the worst paid kinds of labor, and one on which women and young girls are by preference employed, is the sorting of rags. It is well known that Great Britain, apart from its own immense store of rags, is the emporium for the rag trade of the world. They flow in from Japan, from the most remote states of South America, and from the Canary Islands. But the chief sources of their supply are Germany, France, Russia, Italy, Egypt, Turkey, Belgium, and Holland. They are used for manure, for making bed flocks, for shoddy, and they serve as a raw material of paper. The rag sorters are the medium for the spread of smallpox and other infectious diseases, and they themselves are the first victims. Footnote 175. See the report on the rag trade, the numerous details in Public Health 8th Report, London, 1866, Appendix, pages 196-208. A classical example of overwork, of hard and inappropriate labor, and of its brutalizing effects on the workman from his childhood upwards, is afforded not only by coal mining and miners generally, but also by tile and brick making, in which industry the recently invented machinery is, in England, used only here and there. Between May and September the work lasts from five in the morning till eight in the evening, and where the drying is done in the open air, it often lasts from four in the morning till nine in the evening. Work from five in the morning till seven in the evening is considered, quote, reduced, unquote, and, quote, moderate, unquote. Both boys and girls of six and even four years of age are employed. They work for the same number of hours, often longer than the adults. The work is hard and the summer heat increases the exhaustion. In a certain tile field at Moseley, for example, a young woman, 24 years of age, was in the habit of making 2,000 tiles a day with the assistance of two little girls who carried the clay up for her and stacked the tiles. These girls carried daily 10 tons up the slippery sides of the clay pits from a depth of 30 feet and then for a distance of 210 feet. Quote, it is impossible for a child to pass through the purgatory of a tile field without great moral degradation. The low language which they are accustomed to hear from their tenderest years, the filthy, indecent, and shameless habits amidst which, unknowing and half-wild, they grow up, make them in afterlife lawless, abandoned, dissolute. A frightful source of demoralization is the mode of living. Each molder, who is always a skilled laborer and the chief of a group, supplies his seven subordinates with board and lodging in his cottages, whether members of his family or not. The men, boys, and girls all sleep in the cottage, which contains generally two, exceptionally three rooms, all on the ground floor and badly ventilated. These people are so exhausted after the day's hard work that neither the rules of health, of cleanliness, nor of decency are in the least observed. Many of these cottages are models of untidiness, dirt, and dust. The greatest evil of the system that employs young girls at this sort of work consists in this, that, as a rule, it chains them fast from childhood for the whole of their afterlife to the most abandoned rabble. They become rough, foul-mouthed boys before nature has taught them that they are women. Clothed in a few dirty rags, the legs naked far above the knees, hair and face besmeared with dirt, they learn to treat all feelings of decency and of shame with contempt. During mealtimes they lie at full length in the fields, or watch the boys bathing in a neighboring canal. Their heavy day's work at length completed, they put on better clothes and accompany the men to the public houses." Unquote. That excessive insobriety is prevalent from childhood upwards among the whole of this class is only natural. Quote, 
The worst is that the brickmakers despair of themselves. You might as well, said one of the better kind to a chaplain of Southallfield, try to raise and improve the devil as a bricky, sir. Unquote. Footnote 176. Children's Employment Commission, 5th Report, 1866, pages 16 through 18, notes 86 through 97, and pages 103 through 133, notes 39 through 71. See also 3rd Report, 1864, pages 48 and 56, and the footnote 176. As to the manner in which capital affects an economy in the requisites of labor, in modern manufacture, in which I include all workshops of larger size, except factories proper, official and most ample material bearing on it is to be found in the public health reports for 1863 and 6, 1864. The description of the workshops, more especially those of the London printers and tailors, surpasses the most loathsome fantasies of our romance writers. The effect on the health of the workpeople is self-evident. Dr. Simon, chief medical officer of the Privy Council and the official editor of the Public Health Reports says, quote, In my fourth report, 1863, I showed how it is practically impossible for the workpeople to insist upon that which is their first sanitary right, to wit, the right that, no matter what the work for which their employer brings them together, the labor, so far as it depends on him, should be freed from all unavoidably unwholesome conditions. I pointed out that while the workpeople are practically incapable of doing themselves this sanitary justice, they are unable to obtain any effective support from the paid administrators of the sanitary police. The life of myriads of workmen and workwomen is now uselessly tortured and shortened by the never-ending physical suffering that their mere occupation begets. Unquote. Footnote 177, Public Health, 6th Report, London, 1864, pages 29 31. End of footnote 177. In illustration of the way in which the workrooms influence the state of health, Dr. Simon gives the following table of mortality. Number of persons of all ages employed in agriculture in England and Wales, 958,265. Death rate per 100,000 men between the stated ages, age 25 to 35, 743 age 35 to 45, 805, age 45 to 55, 1,145. Number of persons of all ages employed as London tailors, 22,301 men, 12,379 women. Death rate per 100,000 men between the stated ages, age 25 to 35, 958 age 35 to 45, 1,262, age 45 to 55, 2,093. Number of persons of all ages employed as London printers, 13,803. Death rate per 100,000 men between the stated ages, age 25 to 35, 894, age 35 to 45, 1,747 age 45 to 55, 2,367. Footnote 178, Locus Citado, page 30. 
Dr. Simon remarks that the mortality among the London tailors and printers between the ages of 25 and 35 is in fact much greater, because the employers in London obtain from the country a great number of young people up to 30 years of age as, quote, apprentices, unquote, and, quote, improvers, unquote, who come for the purpose of being perfected in their trade. These figure in the census as Londoners. They swell out the number of heads on which the London death rate is calculated, without adding proportionally to the number of deaths in that place. The greater part of them, in fact, return to the country, and especially in cases of severe illness. End of footnote 178. D. Modern Domestic Industry I now come to the so-called domestic industry. In order to get an idea of the horrors of this sphere, in which capital conducts its exploitation in the background of modern mechanical industry, one must go to the apparently quite idyllic trade of nail-making carried on in a few remote villages in England. Footnote 179. I allude here to hammered nails, as distinguished from nails cut out and made by machinery. See Children's Employment Commission Third Report, pages 11, 19, notes 125 through 130, page 52, note 11, page 114, note 487, page 137, note 64, and the footnote 179. In this place, however, it will be enough to give a few examples from those branches of the lace-making and straw-plating industries that are not yet carried on by the aid of machinery, and that as yet do not compete with branches carried on in the factories or manufactories. Of the 150,000 persons employed in England in the production of lace, about 10,000 fall under the authority of the Factory Act, 1861. Almost the whole of the remaining 140,000 are women, young persons, and children of both sexes, the male sex, however, being weakly represented. The state of health of this cheap material for exploitation will be seen from the following table, computed by Dr. Truman, physician to the Nottingham General Dispensary. Out of 686 female patients who were lace-makers, most of them between the ages of 17 and 24, the number of consumptive ones were 1852, 1 in 45, 1853, 1 in 28, 1854, 1 in 17, 1855, 1 in 18, 1856, 1 in 15, 1857, 1 in 13, 1858, 1 in 15, 1859, 1 in 9, 1860, 1 in 8, 1861, 1 in 8. Footnote 180. Children's Employment Commission, Second Report, page 22, note 166, and the footnote 180. This progress in the rate of consumption ought to suffice for the most optimist of progressists, and for the biggest hawker of lies among the free-trade bagmen of Germany. The Factory Act of 1861 regulates the actual making of lace, so far it is done by machinery, and this is the rule in England. The branches that we are now about to examine, solely with regard to those of the workpeople who work at home and not those who work in manufactories or warehouses, fall into two divisions, to wit, one, finishing, two, mending. The former gives the finishing touches to the machine-made lace and includes numerous subdivisions. The lace finishing is done either in what are called, quote, mistresses' houses, unquote, or by women in their own houses, with or without the help of their children. 
The women who keep the, quote, mistresses' houses, unquote, are themselves poor. The workroom is in a private house. The mistresses take orders from manufacturers or from warehouse men and employ as many women, girls, and young children as the size of the rooms and the fluctuating demand of the business will allow. The number of workwomen employed in these workrooms varies from 20 to 40 in some and from 10 to 20 in others. The average age at which the children commence work is six years, but in many cases it is below five. The usual working hours are from eight in the morning till eight in the evening, with one and a half hours for meals, which are taken at irregular intervals and often in the foul workrooms. When business is brisk, the labor frequently lasts from eight or even six o'clock in the morning till ten, eleven, or twelve o'clock at night. In English barracks, the regulation space allotted to each soldier is five hundred to six hundred cubic feet and in the military hospitals 1,200 cubic feet. But in those finishing styes, there are but 67 to 100 cubic feet to each person. At the same time, the oxygen of the air is consumed by gas lights. In order to keep the lace clean, and although the floor is tiled or gagged, the children are often compelled, even in winter, to pull off their shoes. Quote, it is not at all uncommon in Nottingham to find 14 to 20 children huddled together in a small room of perhaps not more than 12 feet square and employed for 15 hours out of the 24 at work that of itself is exhausting from its weariness and monotony and is besides carried on under every possible unwholesome condition. Even the very youngest children work with a strained attention and a rapidity that is astonishing, hardly ever giving their fingers rest or slowering their motion. If a question be asked of them, they never raise their eyes from their work from fear of losing a single moment, unquote. The, quote, long stick, unquote, is used by the mistresses as a stimulant more and more as the working hours are prolonged. Quote, the children gradually tire and become as restless as birds towards the end of their long detention at an occupation that is monotonous, eye-straining, and exhausting from the uniformity in the posture of the body. Their work is like slavery, unquote. Footnote 181, Children's Employment Commission, Second Report, pages 19, 20, 21. End of footnote 181. When women and their children work at home, which nowadays means in a hired room, often in a garret, the state of things is, if possible, still worse. This sort of work is given out within a circle of 80 miles radius from Nottingham. On leaving the warehouses at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, the children are often given a bundle of lace to take home with them and finish. The Pharisee of a capitalist represented by one of his servants accompanies this action, of course, with the unctuous phrase, quote, that's for mother, unquote, yet he knows well enough that the poor children must sit up and help. Footnote 182, Loco Citado, pages 21-22. End of footnote 182. Pillow lace making is chiefly carried on in England in two agricultural districts. One, the Honiton Lace District, extending from 20 to 30 miles along the south coast of Devonshire, and including a few places in North Devon, the other comprising a great part of the counties of Buckingham, Bedford, and Northampton, and also the adjoining portions of Oxfordshire and Huntingdonshire. The cottages of the agricultural laborers are the places where the work is usually carried on. Many manufacturers employ upwards of 3,000 of these lace makers, who are chiefly children and young persons of the female sex exclusively. The state of things described as incidental to lace finishing is here repeated, save that instead of the, quote, mistresses' houses, unquote, we find what are called, quote, lace schools, unquote, 
kept by poor women in their cottages. From their fifth year, and often earlier, until their twelfth or fifteenth year, the children work in these schools. During the first year, the very young ones work from four to eight hours, and later on, from six in the morning till eight and ten o'clock at night. Quote, the rooms are generally the ordinary living rooms of small cottages. The chimney stopped up to keep out drafts. The inmates kept warm by their own animal heat alone, and this frequently in winter. In other cases, the so-called schoolrooms are like small storerooms without fireplaces. The overcrowding in these dens and the consequent vitiation of the air are often extreme. Added to this is the injurious effect of drains, privies, decomposing substances, and other filth usual in the perilous of the smaller cottages, unquote. With regard to space, quote, in one lay school, 18 girls and a mistress, 35 cubic feet to each person. In another, where the smell was unbearable, 18 persons and 24.5 cubic feet per head. In this industry are to be found employed children of two and two and a half years, unquote. Footnote 183. Loco Citado, pages 29-30, end of footnote 183. Quote, the smaller of these numbers, says one of the commissioners, Mr. White, represents less space than half of what a child would occupy if packed in a box measuring three feet in each direction. Unquote. Thus do children enjoy life till the age of twelve or fourteen. The wretched, half-starved parents think of nothing but getting as much as possible out of their children. The latter, as soon as they are grown up, do not care a farthing, and naturally so, for their parents and leave them. Quote, it is no wonder that ignorance and vice abound in a population so brought up. Their morality is at the lowest ebb. A great number of the women have illegitimate children, and that at such an immature age that even those most conversant with criminal statistics are astounded. Unquote. Footnote 184, Local Citado, pages 11, 12. End of footnote 184. And the native land of these model families is the pattern Christian country for Europe. So says at least Count Montembert, certainly a competent authority on Christianity. Wages in the above industries, miserable as they are, the maximum wages of a child in the straw plate schools, rising in rare cases to three shillings, are reduced far below their normal amount by the prevalence of the truck system everywhere but especially in the lace districts. Footnote 185, Children's Employment Commission, First Report, 1863, page 185, and the footnote 185. Subsection E, Passage of Modern Manufacture and Domestic Industry into Modern Mechanical Industry. The hastening of this revolution by the application of the Factory Acts to these industries. The cheapening of labor power, by sheer abuse of the labor of women and children, by sheer robbery of every normal condition requisite for working and living, and by the sheer brutality of overwork and night work, meets at last with natural obstacles that cannot be overstepped. So also, when based on these methods, do the cheapening of commodities and capitalist exploitation in general. So soon as this point is at last reached, and it takes many years, the hour has struck for the introduction of machinery and for the thenceforth rapid conversion of the scattered domestic industries and also for manufacturers into factory industries. An example on the most colossal scale of this movement is afforded by the production of wearing apparel. This industry, according to the classification of the Children's Employment Commission, 
comprises straw hat makers, ladies hat makers, cap makers, tailors, milliners and dressmakers, shirt makers, corset makers, glove makers, shoe makers, besides many minor branches such as the making of neckties, collars, etc. In 1861, the number of females employed in these industries in England and Wales amounted to 586,299. Of these, 150,242 at the least were under 20, and 16,650 under 15 years of age. The number of these workwomen in the United Kingdom in 1861 was 740,334. The number of males employed in England and Wales in hat making, shoe making, glove making, and tailoring was 437,969. Of these, 14,964 under 15 years, 89,285 between 15 and 20, and 333,117 over 20 years. Many of the smaller branches are not included in these figures, but take the figures as they stand. We then have for England and Wales alone, according to the census of 1861, a total of 1,024,277 persons, about as many as are absorbed by agriculture and cattle breeding we begin to understand what becomes of the immense quantities of goods conjured up by the magic of machinery and of the enormous masses of workpeople that machinery sets free. The production of wearing apparel is carried on partly in manufactories in whose workrooms there is but a reproduction of that division of labor, the membra disjecta, of which were found ready to hand, partly by small master handcraftsmen. These, however, do not, as formerly, work for individual consumers but for manufactories and warehouses, and to such an extent that often whole towns and stretches of country carry on certain branches, such as shoemaking, as a specialty. Finally, on a very great scale by the so-called domestic workers, who form an external department of the manufactories, warehouses, and even of the workshops of the smaller masters. Footnote 186. In England, millinery and dressmaking are for the most part carried on on the premises of the employer, partly by workwomen who live there, partly by women who live off the premises. End footnote 186. The raw material, etc., is supplied by mechanical industry. The mass of cheap human material Tayable, a merci et misericorde. is composed of the individuals, quote, liberated, unquote, by mechanical industry and improved agriculture. The manufacturers of this class owed their origin chiefly to the capitalist need of having at hand an army ready equipped to meet any increase of demand. Footnote 187. Mr. White, a commissioner, visited a military clothing manufactory that employed 1,000 to 1,200 persons, almost all females, and a shoe manufactory with 1,300 persons. Of these, nearly one-half were children and young persons. End footnote 187. These manufacturers, nevertheless, allow the scattered handicrafts and domestic industries to continue to exist as a broad foundation. The great production of surplus value in these branches of labor and the progressive cheapening of their articles were and are chiefly due to the minimum wages paid, no more than requisite for miserable vegetation, and to the extension of working time up to the maximum endurable by the human organism. It was, in fact, by the cheapness of the human sweat and the human blood, which were converted into commodities, that the markets were constantly being extended and continue daily to be extended. More especially was this the case with England's colonial markets, where, besides, 
English tastes and habits prevail. At last the critical point was reached. The basis of the old method, sheer brutality in the exploitation of the workpeople, accompanied more or less by a systematic division of labor, no longer suffice for the extending markets and for the still more rapidly extending competition of the capitalist. The hour had struck for the advent of machinery. The decisively revolutionary machine, the machine which attacks in an equal degree the whole of the numberless branches of this sphere of production, dressmaking, tailoring, shoemaking, sewing, hat-making, and many others, is the sewing machine. Its immediate effect on the workpeople is like that of all machinery, which, since the rise of modern industry, has seized upon new branches of trade. Children of too tender an age are sent adrift. The wage of the machine hands rises compared with that of the house workers, many of whom belong to the poorest of the poor. That of the better situated handicraftsmen, with whom the machine competes, sinks. The new machine hands are exclusively girls and young women. With the help of mechanical force, they destroy the monopoly that male labor had of the heavier work, and they drive off from the lighter work numbers of old women and very young children. The overpowering competition crushes the weakest of the manual laborers. The fearful increase in death from starvation during the last ten years in London runs parallel with the extension of machine sewing. Footnote 188. An instance. The weekly report of deaths by the Register General dated 26th of February, 1864, contains five cases of death from starvation. On the same day, the Times reports another case, six victims of starvation in one week. And footnote 188. The new workwoman turned the machines by hand and foot, or by hand alone, sometimes sitting, sometimes standing, according to the weight, size, and special make of the machine, and expend a great deal of labor power. Their occupation is unwholesome, owing to the long hours, although in most cases they are not so long as under the old system. Wherever the sewing machine locates itself in narrow and already overcrowded workrooms, it adds to the unwholesome influences. The effect says Mr. Lord, on entering low-ceiling workrooms in which thirty to forty machine hands are working is unbearable. The heat, partly due to the gas stoves used for warming the irons, is horrible. Even when moderate hours of work, i.e., from eight in the morning till six in the evening, prevail in such places, yet three or four persons fall into a swoon regularly every day. Footnote 189. Children's Employment Commission, Second Report, 1864, page 67, notes 406 through 409, page 84, notes 124, page 73, note 441, page 68, note 6, page 84, note 126, page 78, note 85, page 76, note 69, page 72, note 483, and footnote 189. The revolution in the industrial methods, which is the necessary result of the revolution of the instruments of production, is affected by a medley of transition forms. These forms vary according to the extent to which the sewing machine has become prevalent in one branch of industry or the other, to the time during which it has been in operation, to the previous condition of the workpeople, to the preponderance of manufacture, of handicrafts, or of domestic industry, to the rent of the workrooms, etc., Footnote 190, quote, The rental of premises required for workrooms seems the element which ultimately determines the point, and consequently it is in the metropolis that the old system of giving work out to small employers and families 
has been longest retained and earliest returned to, unquote. Loco Citado, page 83, note 123. The concluding statement in this quotation refers exclusively to shoemaking, and footnote 190. In dressmaking, for instance, where the labor for the most part was already organized, chiefly by simple cooperation, the sewing machine at first formed merely a new factor in that manufacturing industry. In tailoring, shirt-making, shoe-making, etc., all the forms are intermingled. Here the factory system proper. There middlemen received the raw material from the capitalists en chef and grooved around their sewing machines in, quote, chambers, unquote, and, quote, garrets, unquote, from 10 to 50 or more workwomen. Finally, as is always the case with machinery when not organized into a system, and when it can also be used in dwarfish proportions, handicraftsmen and domestic workers, along with their families, or with a little extra labor from without, make use of their own sewing machines. Footnote 191. In glove-making and other industries where the condition of the workpeople is hardly distinguishable from that of paupers, this does not occur. End footnote 191. The system actually prevalent in England is that the capitalist concentrates a large number of machines on his premises and then distributes the produce of those machines for further manipulation amongst the domestic workers. Footnote 192. Locus Citado, page 83, note 122. End footnote 192. The variety of the transition forms, however, does not conceal the tendency to conversion into the factory system proper. This tendency is nurtured by the very nature of the sewing machine, the manifold uses of which push on the concentration under one roof and one management of previously separate branches of a trade. It also favored by the circumstance that preparatory needlework and certain other operations are most conveniently done on the premises where the machine is at work, as well as by the inevitable expropriation of hand sewers and of the domestic workers who work with their own machines. This fate has already in part overtaken them. The constantly increasing amount of capital invested in sewing machines gives the spur to the production of, and gluts the market with, machine-made articles, thereby giving the signal to the domestic workers for the sale of their machines. Footnote 193. In the wholesale boot and shoe trade of Leicester alone, there were in 1864 800 sewing machines already in use. And footnote 193. The overproduction of sewing machines themselves causes their producers, in bad want of sale, to let them out for so much a week, thus crushing by their deadly competition the small owners of machines. Footnote 194. Loco Citado, page 84, note 124. End footnote 194. Constant changes in the construction of the machines and their ever-increasing cheapness deprecate day by day the older makes and allow of their being sold in great numbers at absurd prices to large capitalists who alone can thus employ them at a profit. Finally, the substitution of the steam engine for man gives in this, as in all similar revolutions, the finishing blow. At first, the use of steam power meets with mere technical difficulties such as unsteadiness in the machines, difficulty in controlling their speed, rapid wear and tear of the lighter machines, etc., all of which are soon overcome by experience. Footnote 195. Instances, the Army Clothing Depot at Pimlico, London, the Shirt Factory of Tillet and Henderson in Londonderry, and the Clothes Factory of Monsieur Tate at Limerick, which employs about 1,200 hands. End footnote 195. 
If, on the one hand, the concentration of many machines in large manufactories leads to the use of steam power, on the other hand, the competition of steam with human muscle hastens on the concentration of workpeople and machines in large factories. Thus England is at present experiencing not only in the colossal industry of making wearing apparel, but in most of the other trades mentioned above, the conversion of manufacture, of handicrafts, and of domestic work into the factory system, after each of those forms of production, totally changed and disorganized under the influence of modern industry, has long ago reproduced, and even overdone, all the horrors of the factory system without participating in any of the elements of social progress it contains. Footnote 196, quote, Tendency to Factory System, unquote. Local Citado, page 67, quote, the whole employment is at this time in a state of transition and is undergoing the same change as that affected in the lace trade, weaving, etc. Unquote. Local Citado, note 405. Quote, a complete revolution. Unquote. Local Citado, page 66, note 318. At the date of the Children's Employment Commission of 1840, stocking making was still done by manual labor. Since 1846, various sorts of machines have been introduced, which are now driven by steam. The total number of persons, of both sexes and of all ages from three years upwards, employed in stocking making in England was in 1862 about 129,000. Of these, only 4,063 were, according to the parliamentary return of the 11th of February, 1862, working under the Factory Acts. End footnote 196. This industrial revolution, which takes place spontaneously, is artificially helped on by the extension of the factory acts to all industries in which women, young persons, and children are employed. The compulsory regulation of the working day as regards its length, pauses, beginning and end, the system of relays of children, the exclusion of all children under a certain age, etc., necessitates, on the one hand, more machinery and the substitution of steam as a motive power in the place of muscles. Footnote 197. Thus, for example, in the earthenware trade, Messrs. Cochrane of the Britain Pottery, Glasgow, report, quote, To keep up our quantity, we have gone extensively into machines wrought by unskilled labor, and every day convinces us that we can produce a greater quantity than by the old method, unquote. Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st of October, 1865, page 13, quote, The effect of the factory acts is to force on the further introduction of machinery, unquote. Local Citado, pages 13 through 14, and footnote 197. Footnote 198. Thus, after the extension of the factory acts to the potteries, great increase of power jiggers in place of hand-moved jiggers. End footnote 198. On the other hand, in order to make up for the loss of time, an expansion occurs of the means of production used in common, of the furnaces, buildings, etc., in one word, greater concentration of the means of production, and a correspondingly greater concourse of workpeople. The chief objection, repeatedly and passionately urged on behalf of each manufacturer threatened with the Factory Act, is in fact this, that in order to continue the business on the old scale, a greater outlay of capital will be necessary. But as regards labor in the so-called domestic industries and the intermediate forms between them and manufacture, so soon as limits are put to the working day and to the employment of children, those industries go to the wall. Unlimited exploitation of cheap labor power is the sole foundation of their power to compete. One of the essential conditions for the existence of the factory system, especially when the length of the working day is fixed, is certainly in the result, i.e., 
the production in a given time of a given quantity of commodities or of a given useful effect the statutory pauses in the working day moreover imply the assumption that periodical and sudden cessation of the work does no harm to the article undergoing the process of production the certainty in the result and this possibility of interrupting the work are of course easier to be attained in the purely mechanical industries than those in which chemical and physical processes play a part as for instance in the earthenware trade in bleaching dyeing baking and in most of the metal industries wherever there is a working day without restriction as to length wherever there is night work and unrestricted waste of human life the slightest obstacle presented by the nature of the work to a change for the better is soon looked upon as an everlasting barrier erected by nature no poison kills vermin with more certainty than the factory act removes such everlasting barriers no one made a greater outcry over quote, impossibilities unquote, than our friends the earthenware manufacturers in eighteen sixty four however they were brought under the act, and within sixteen months every quote, impossibility unquote, had vanished. Quote, the improved method unquote, called forth by the act quote, of making slip by pressure instead of by evaporation the newly constructed stoves for drying the ware in its green state, etc., are each events of great importance in the pottery art and mark an advance which the preceding century could not rival it has even considerably reduced the temperature of the stoves themselves with a considerable saving of fuel and with a readier effect on the wear unquote. footnote one ninety nine report of inspectors of factories thirty first of october eighteen sixty five pages ninety six and one twenty seven and footnote one ninety nine in spite of every prophecy the cost price of earthenware did not rise but the quantity produced did and to such an extent that the export for the twelve months ending december eighteen sixty five exceeded in value by one hundred thirty eight thousand six hundred twenty eight pounds the average of the preceding three years in the manufacture of matches it was thought to be an indispensable requirement that boys even while bolting their dinner should go on dipping the matches in melted phosphorus the poisonous vapor from which rose into their faces the factory act eighteen sixty four made the saving of time a necessity and so forced into existence a dipping machine the vapor from which could not come in contact with the workers footnote two hundred the introduction of this and other machinery into matchmaking caused in one department alone two hundred thirty young persons to be replaced by thirty-two boys and girls of fourteen to seventeen years of age this saving in labor was carried still further in eighteen sixty five by the employment of steam power and footnote two hundred so at the present time in those branches of the lace manufacture not yet subject to the factory act it is maintained that the meal times cannot be regular owing to the different periods required by the various kinds of lace for drying which periods vary from three minutes up to an hour or more to this the children's employment commission's answer quote, the circumstances of this case are precisely analogous to that of the paper stainers dealt with in our first report some of the principal manufacturers in the trade urged that in consequence of the nature of the materials used and their various processes they would be unable without serious loss to stop for meal times at any given moment but it was seen from the evidence that by due care and previous arrangement the apprehended difficulty would be got over and accordingly by clause six of section six of the factory acts extension act passed during this session of parliament an interval of eighteen months is given to them for the passing of the act before they are required to conform to the meal hours specified by the factory acts unquote. footnote two o one children's employment commission eleventh report 
1864, page 9, note 50, and footnote 201. Hardly had the act been passed when our friends the manufacturers found out, quote, the inconveniences we expected to arise from the introduction of the factory acts into our branch of manufacture, I am happy to say, have not arisen. We do not find the production at all interfered with. In short, we produce more in the same time. Unquote. Footnote 202. Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st of October, 1865, page 22. End footnote 202. It is evident that the English legislature, which certainly no one will venture to reproach with being overdosed with genius, has been led by experience to the conclusion that a simple compulsory law is sufficient to enact away all the so-called impediments opposed by the nature of the process to the restriction and regulation of the working day. Hence, on the introduction of the Factory Act into a given industry, a period varying from six to eighteen months is fixed within which it is incumbent on the manufacturers to remove all technical impediments to the working of the Act. Mirabeau's Impossible, ne me dis jamais ce bête de mot, is particularly applicable to modern technology. But though the Factory Acts thus artificially ripen the material elements necessary for the conversion of the manufacturing system to the factory system, Yet at the same time, owing to the necessity they impose for greater outlay of capital, they hasten on the decline of the small masters in the concentration of capital. Footnote 203, quote, But it must be borne in mind that those improvements, though carried out fully in some establishments, are by no means general and are not capable of being brought into use in many of the old manufactories without an expenditure of capital beyond the means of many of the present occupiers. Unquote. Quote, I cannot but rejoice, unquote, writes Sub-Inspector May, quote, that notwithstanding the temporary disorganization which inevitably follows the introduction of such a measure as the Factory Act Extension Act, and is indeed directly indicative of the evils which it was intended to remedy, etc., unquote. Report of Inspectors of Factories, 31st of October, 1865, and footnote 203. Besides the purely technical impediments that are removable by technical means, the irregular habits of the workpeople themselves obstruct the regulation of the hours of labor. This is especially the case where peace wage predominates, and where loss of time in one part of the day or week can be made good by subsequent overtime or by night work, a process which brutalizes the adult workman and ruins his wife and children. Footnote 204. With blast furnaces, for instance, quote, Work towards the end of the week being generally much increased in duration in consequence of the habit of the men of idling on Monday and occasionally during a part of the whole of Tuesday also, unquote. Children's Employment Commission, Third Report, page 6, quote, The little masters generally have very irregular hours. They lose two or three days and then work all night to make it up. They always employ their own children if they have any, unquote. Locus Citado, page 7, quote, the one of regularity in coming to work, encouraged by the possibility and practice of making up for this by working longer hours, unquote, Locus Citado, page 18, quote, in Birmingham, an enormous amount of time is lost, idling part of the time, slaving the rest, unquote, Locus Citado, page 9, end footnote 204. Although this absence of regularity in the expenditure of labor power is a natural and rude reaction against the tedium of monotonous drudgery, it originates also, to a much greater degree, from anarchy in production, anarchy that in turn presupposes unbridled exploitation of labor power by the capitalist. 
besides the general periodic changes of the industrial cycle and the special fluctuations in the markets to which each industry is subject we may also reckon what is called quote, the season unquote, dependent either on the periodicity of favorable seasons of the year for navigation or on fashion and the sudden placing of large orders that have to be executed in the shortest possible time the habit of giving such orders becomes more frequent with the extension of railways and telegraphs quote, the extension of the railway system throughout the country has tended very much to encourage giving short notice purchasers now come up from glasgow manchester and edinburgh once every fortnight or so to the wholesale city warehouses which we supply and give small orders requiring immediate execution instead of buying from stock as they used to do years ago we were always able to work in the slack times so as to meet demand of the next season but now no one can say beforehand what will be the demand then Unquote. footnote two o five children's employment commission fourth report page thirty two the extension of the railway system is said to have contributed greatly to this custom of giving sudden orders and the consequent hurry, neglect of meal times, and late hours of the workpeople. Unquote. Locus Citado, page 31. End footnote 205. In those factories and manufactories that are not yet subject to the factory acts, the most fearful overwork prevails periodically during what is called the season in consequence of sudden orders. In the outside department of the factory, of the manufactory and of the warehouse the so-called domestic workers whose employment is at best irregular are entirely dependent for their raw material and their orders on the crease of the capitalist who in this industry is not hampered by any regard for depreciation of his buildings and machinery and risks nothing by a stoppage of work but the skin of the worker himself here then he sets himself systematically to work to form an industrial reserve force that shall be ready at a moment's notice during one part of the year he decimates this force by the most inhuman toil during the other part he lets it starve for want of work Quote, the employers avail themselves of the habitual irregularity of the homework when any extra work is wanted at a push so that the work goes on till eleven and twelve p m or two a m or as the usual phrase is quote, at all hours unquote, and that in localities where quote, the stench is enough to knock you down you go to the door perhaps and open it but shudder to go further unquote, unquote. footnote two o six children's employment commission fourth report page thirty five notes Two thirty five two thirty seven and footnote two o six quote, they are curious men unquote, said one of the witnesses, a shoemaker, speaking of the masters, quote, they think it does a boy no harm to work too hard for half the year if he is nearly idle for the other half unquote. footnote two o seven children's employment commission fourth report page one twenty seven note fifty six and footnote two o seven in the same way as technical impediments so too those quote, usages which have grown with the growth of trade unquote, were and still are proclaimed by interested capitalists as obstacles due to the nature of the work this was a favorite cry of the cotton lords at the time they were first threatened with the factory acts although their industry more than any other depends on navigation yet experience has given them the lie since then every pretended obstruction to business has been treated by the factory inspectors as a mere sham footnote 208 with respect to the loss of trade by non-completion of shipping orders in time i remember that this was the pet argument of the factory masters in eighteen thirty two and eighteen thirty three 
nothing that can be advanced now on this subject could have the force that it had then before steam had halved all distances and established new regulations for transit it quite failed at that time of proof when put to the test and again it will certainly fail should it have to be tried Unquote. reports of inspectors of factories thirty first of october eighteen sixty two pages fifty four fifty five and footnote two o eight the thoroughly conscientious investigations of the children's employment commission prove that the effect of the regulation of the hours of work in some industries was to spread the mass of labor previously employed more evenly over the whole year that this regulation was the first rational bridle on the murderous meaningless caprices of fashion caprices that consort so badly with the system of modern industry that the development of ocean navigation and of the means of communication generally has swept away the technical basis on which season work was really supported and that all the other so-called unconquerable difficulties vanish before larger buildings additional machinery increase in the number of work people employed and the alterations caused by all these in the mode of conducting the wholesale trade footnote two hundred eight a children's employment commission fourth report page eighteen note one eighteen and footnote two hundred eight a footnote two hundred eight b john bellers remarked as far back as sixteen ninety nine quote, the uncertainty of fashions does increase necessitous poor. It has two great mischiefs in it. First, the journeymen are miserable in winter for want of work, the mercers and master weavers not daring to lay out their stocks to keep the journeymen employed before the spring comes, and they know what the fashion will then be. Secondly, in the spring the journeymen are not sufficient, but the master weavers must draw in many apprentices that they may supply the trade of the kingdom in a quarter or half a year, which robs the plough of hands, drains the country of labourers, and in a great part stocks the city with beggars, and starves some in winter that are ashamed to beg. Unquote. Essays about the poor manufacturers, etc. Page nine. End footnote two hundred eight b. Footnote two hundred nine. Children's Employment Commission Fourth Report, page one seventy one, note thirty four. End footnote two hundred nine. Footnote two ten. The evidence of some Bradford export houses is as follows, quote, Under these circumstances, it seems clear that no boys need to be worked longer than from 8 a.m. to 7 or 7.30 p.m. in making up. It is merely a question of extra hands and extra outlay. If some masters were not so greedy, the boys would not work late. An extra machine costs only 16 or 18 pounds. Much of such overtime as does occur is to be referred to an insufficiency of appliances and a want of space. Unquote. Children's Employment Commission, Fourth Report, page 171, notes 35, 36, 38, and footnote 210. Footnote 211, Locus Citado. A London manufacturer, who in other respects looks upon the compulsory regulation of the hours of labor as a protection for the workpeople against the manufacturers, and for the manufacturers themselves against the wholesale trade, states, quote, The pressure in our business is caused by the shippers, who want, for the sake of example, to send the goods by sailing vessel so as to reach their destination at a given season, and at the same time want to pocket the difference in freight between a sailing vessel and a steamship, or who select the earlier of two steamships in order to be in the foreign market before their competitors. End footnote 211. But for all that, capital never becomes reconciled to such changes, and this is admitted over and over again by its own representatives, except, quote, under the pressure of a general act of parliament, unquote, for the compulsory regulation of the hours of labor. Footnote 212, 
quote, this could be obviated, unquote, says a manufacturer, quote, at the expense of an enlargement of the works under the pressure of a general act of parliament, unquote. Loco Citado, page 10, note 38, and footnote 212. End of chapter 15, section 8 of Capital, volume 1.